might be wondering where the, uh, the number one beard in the church is this morning. <laughs> Pastor Paul is in Nevada with his family. His mom, Pam, has been waiting to get baptized for a couple of years now. And um, COVID delayed things and disrupted things. And she really wanted Paul and his family to be there for it. But they haven't been able to travel out of state uh, because of the foster situation, uh, but they recently got approval, and so they are there in Nevada today to see Pam get baptized, and we're so very, very excited that they're able to share in that moment. And uh, since he's not here, I just wanted to take a minute to just encourage you all. You are very blessed to have Pastor Paul as an elder here, and to have his wife Anna by his side. It is a joy to serve alongside that man and to see his heart and love for theology is an incredible joy to me. And so make sure you appreciate uh, the work that God does through Paul and through Anna and that family. I know that you love him and I know that you appreciate him, but it's great to be able to be surrounded by men who I trust in ministry and to know that we are on the same page and to serve with Ross and Sean and to know that they love the Lord God and don't want to compromise uh, in his word is, is a tremendous, tremendous joy to my life. So Make sure uh, that you let them know that it's a joy to your life as well. Uh, we love them, and we're praying for a safe return for them uh, when they return back from Nevada today. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be wrapping up that chapter this morning. And I want to begin our sermon with a question. What should a Christian think about ambition? What should a Christian think about ambition? Ambition being a kind of enduring drive, to achieve something great, to become something better than you currently are, to set great goals, and then work hard and sacrifice to achieve those goals. What should a Christian think about having that kind of driven, determined state of mind? Now, on the one hand, to strive after greatness is good, right? If being good is good, isn't being great even better than being good? Shouldn't we aim for lofty things and push ourselves to the edge of what we are capable as men and women? So many of the stories of mankind that resonate with us are stories about those who had ambition, who were not content to just accept the limitations that they seem to be born with. We watch movies like Rudy, right? How many of you have seen the movie Rudy? I'm starting to skew old because those are movies that now people are beginning to have not ever seen before. But Rudy was a story of a, of a young man with almost no athletic ability whatsoever who decided at a very young age that he was going to play football for Notre Dame University. And then he made sacrifice after sacrifice to achieve that goal. He refused to quit. He refused to become discouraged or settle for less. His story inspires us, right? It makes us look in the mirror and ask, what could I do that I am not doing because of my complacency, because of my laziness? So mankind has a built-in admiration for ambition, I think. Almost a bias towards favoring people who are ambitious. Because even if we don't have the discipline and drive to pursue those greater goals, we still benefit when others do that, when others push forward. When they rise above and make something great of themselves, often that filters down to us, and we are blessed by their work. Now, on the other hand, striving and yearning are things that a Christian has to think differently about now that they are in the grace of Jesus Christ. We can't look at ambition exactly the same way we, we did before, before the Lord God revealed to us our need for redemption. Things that naturally made sense to us before our lives were turned upside down by the love of Jesus Christ don't necessarily make sense in the same ways now. As good as it sounds to overcome the odds and put our hard work to the test so that we can set aside every hindrance and achieve our maximum potential, the gospel of Jesus Christ has revealed something that we cannot ignore, that even the best of us are sinners. Sinners who are in need of forgiveness and grace. If there is one thing that we have all excelled at, sadly, it's breaking the law of God. It's ignoring what is good and chasing after what is wicked. 
A Christian was once spiritually dead, just like everyone is born spiritually dead, living in darkness, ignorant of the power of God and the beauty of His righteousness. But then God made us alive through the work of Jesus Christ. Not just physically alive, not just able to walk through the world, but spiritually alive. As the Apostle Paul described in the second chapter of Colossians, the light of His grace shined into the darkness of our ignorance and showed us what deep down we already knew about ourselves, that God is the one true King and that each of us have followed in a pattern of the first man, Adam, by breaking that king's laws. And the only one who can undo our rebellious hearts is the king himself. I think everyone in the world knows that their sin is serious. But it isn't until the Lord God puts it on our heart by the Spirit and and regenerates us that we begin to think clearly about our true need for a Savior. So no matter what you can muster along the lines of energy to achieve greatness, the most important aspect of your existence is, is stuck in the in inevitable failure of sin until God comes and breaks that heart of stone up and replaces it with a heart of flesh. No amount of ambitious achievement can cover up our failures, and we cannot deal with this grave problem on our own the solution does not lie deep within us. We can't look to ourselves to overcome it. It is completely in the hands of the God that we are worshiping here today, the, the very God that we offended with our rebellion, whose wrath we deserve, but whose wrath Jesus bore on the cross for his people. So Christians must think about ambition differently, knowing that what drives man naturally is sin. What drives man naturally is independence from God knowing that we could never achieve what is greatest in life apart from God himself, we have to think about ambition through that lens. In fact, until we're overcome by the grace of Jesus Christ, our attempts at striving can only ever reinforce the great reality of God's wrath upon us. And that's why we sang earlier in the first song that we, we lifted up this morning, without the right man on our side, meaning Jesus Christ as our advocate, our mediator, and our substitutionary atonement. Without the right man on our side, our striving would be failing. So every good thing that we can achieve or accomplish or acquire through ambition is futile if we are not right with God. Mark 8.36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. That humbles us. It gives us a new perspective on ambition, doesn't it? So ambition itself should not be what compels us, Christians. The Apostle Paul will go on to write in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that it is the love of Christ which compels us. But make no mistake about it. The Christian should be compelled it is no small thing that the glory of God has changed us from the inside out, that we might be a useful tool to implement His glory in the world. And that fact should and will manifest in a desire to love God the best that we can, to serve Him according to the example of the sacrificial service that He rendered to His church, to know Him with an ever-increasing clarity and appreciation should be the drive of our hearts, to tell all the more of what we have discovered and been shown by God's revelation, to declare that to the world around us. Woe to a church that no longer hungers and thirsts for the righteousness that can only be found in Christ. If you are saved, that salvation should compel you. It should motivate you to want to live a life that is holier, a life that matches the life of Christ more accurately. This compelling desire for more of God's treasure should impact our view of the spiritual gifts as well. We've been learning about the body of Christ metaphor and how God gives the members of his body spiritual gifts to be a blessing to the church. And so as Paul closes out chapter 12, he's going to drive home some practical application regarding the gifts before he begins to tackle the topic from a slightly different angle in chapter 13. I'm, I'm really excited to get into chapter 13 and to preach it from the perspective of the body of Christ 
So often chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is divorced from its context and is looked at just strictly as love, the love chapter, but it is the love chapter in context of the body of Christ loving one another. So before we get there, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're looking at verses 27 through 31. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Bow with me in the brief word of prayer. Lord God, we come before this word, which has been an encouragement to brothers and sisters for 2,000 years since the church in Corinth was founded and you put it upon the Apostle Paul's heart to write to them, to challenge them and encourage them, Lord God. We learn so much from looking over the shoulder of the Corinthians as they read this letter and thinking about how it applies to us as well, Lord God. We we do live in a sinful place as the Corinthians did. We do struggle uh, with this tendency to slide back into the life that we lived before you saved us. And so I do pray, Lord God, that as you bolster our hearts with the declaration of your truth, that we would not be afraid to begin to live according to this or to return to living to it if we have before but have been negligent. We thank you, Lord God, for the faithfulness of the word. And I pray that you would preach it in a powerful way right now that people might be moved by it, that they might be changed by your word. Lord God, that your Holy Spirit might be doing a great and mighty work in the hearts and minds of the people of this church. And for those who are here today and are not yet believing in you, Christ, I pray that you would capture their hearts today, that they would see that they need you, that there is no hope beside you. May they give their life to you and may you be glorified in that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us all to notice how this section begins in verse 27. It says, Now you are the body of Christ. Now up to this point, Paul has spoken of the body metaphor in general terms, but now for the first time, he personalizes it for the readers in Corinth. To the church, generally speaking, the church is the body of Christ. But as a part of God's church, the Corinthians needed to see themselves as that body. This is not just a general metaphor. They needed to see themselves as the working of God's will in the city of Corinth. And this comes back to you as well if you are in Christ. Apart from Christ, we are not a part of the body of Christ. Apart from Christ, we had no Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Apart from Christ, we were the aim of God's judgment, not His love and affection. But once we are in Christ... Once we have put our trust in Him and confessed our great need for His forgiveness, once we are in Christ, we have been joined to Him in a mystical kind of union. His aims and goals are now what drives us. They are our ambitions. And so as physical extensions of God's grace sent out into the world, we act as representatives of His kingdom, and God is pleased to use us to display His love and His grace to the world. Each of the metaphors of the church help us in our understanding not only of what the church is to be, but also what the church is supposed to do. It directs us to act in ways that are consistent with our new character. So if you think about some of those other metaphors that we went into more depth in a few weeks back, if the church is an army, that means that, that every Christian is a soldier. Every Christian should be alert, should be bold, should be ready to stand. And that expecting opposition should be natural for us as soldiers. But at the same time as soldiers, we should know that that opposition should only make us all the more committed to the mission that we have been instructed to be a part of. If the church is a family, then we are to act like a family. We are to nurture one another. We're to obey the father of the family. We're to represent the family in name and to enjoy the benefits of the inheritance we've been blessed with. If the church is a temple, which it is, then every believer conducts themselves in a holy manner, 
cognizant of the fact that we are carrying around the very presence of God's Spirit wherever we go. We strive for purity. We don't defile this temple. We don't look at the temple as something built on a mountain somewhere far, far away, but rather we recognize that the holiness of God is with us where we go and that our lives are now a living sacrifice, not offered up in fire, but offered up with love and joy day in and day out as we serve our God. So each of these metaphors helps not only our understanding of who we are, but of what we do. And as the material body of God, each Christian who is a part of the church, this great body, each Christian must be actively playing the role that the head has appointed to him or to her. All of this metaphor, all of this symbolism is meant to illustrate a fact that is so very important the Corinthians cannot afford to think of it just in abstract third-person ways. They have to apply it to who they are and what they do. They are themselves this diverse and complex organism that represents the Lord and works out His will and delivers His love and grace in tangible ways to those around them. As is so typical of the way that God mercifully instructs us in His Word. A practical application or a command will be given. We see this time and time again in Scripture. But woven into that very command is a reminder in the Scripture that we do not obey that command on our own. That we do not fulfill our obligations to God independent of the Spirit's power. No, we as Christians are called to be active in faith. But our action is always dependent upon the faith that God alone supplies. So Paul does just that. He makes it very hard to confuse law and gospel here. He makes it very hard for us to think wrongly about our part in the body. You know, our, our, our minds might wander off and think, well, if I'm a part of the body, that means I, I've got to work harder. Uh, the body can't get along without me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm critical to the body. I don't want to let Jesus down. God will be so disappointed if I don't do this as his body. That's, that's where our carnal mind will sometimes go. But before our thoughts even head in that direction, Paul's reminding us that it is God who sets these members in their places and ordains for them to function as they will. Verse 28, God has appointed in the church. He has appointed members that each function according to his design. And so we're not sent out to do this work on our own. He is calling us beside Him. He is equipping us and strengthening us and giving us wisdom so that we can obey this command with Him, not for Him, not apart from Him, but by His strength. We're going to see this in two phases this morning in this sermon. In the first phase, Paul will speak of certain persons or offices that God puts in place for the well-being of the whole church. These positions, apostles, prophets, and teachers. They carry a degree of authority and influence over the rest of the body of Christ. And so Paul assures the Corinthians that it is perfectly okay to desire this kind of gifting. We talked at the beginning of the sermon about an ambition. It is not wrong to, to hope and to ask that the Lord might use us in some of those ways. And then he speaks of the second phase of gifts, which is returning to a mixture of abilities some clearly of a spiritual nature and others quite practical and common in nature, but all used by God to help His church grow to full maturity. So we'll begin with phase one, these, uh, these person gifts. We're going to see a very similar listing of these gifts in Ephesians 4. So I'm going to encourage you to turn in your Bible there. I, I've been blown away lately how much the book of Ephesians parallels what God teaches us in 1 Corinthians. So go to Ephesians chapter 4. And this is the very scripture that, that Ross read at the beginning of our ser uh, service. And, and I think we're going to read it again because sometimes people don't get here in time for that uh, or they're getting settled and it's hard to, to pay close attention. So let's look, at first, or, uh, let's look at Ephesians 4 and we're going to look at verses 11 through 16 again. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see the, the corresponding teaching that Paul gave to the Ephesian church, which we can see there must be important to our church too. If this is the kind of concepts that he goes around encouraging all of the churches with, then we should take this to heart ourselves, right? Now, there are two Greek words used in the New Testament to describe spiritual gifting, charismata and domata. Charismata is used more frequently than domata, and it is the term that Paul uses in the lists that we find in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12 that we studied a couple weeks ago to describe specific skill sets or specific abilities that God imparts to a member of the body. In this Ephesians passage, however, and then at the end of chapter 12, Doma is, is looking at these gifts slightly differently. He uses a different Greek word in the letter to the Ephesians for gifts. It is that word domata. And the two words mean essentially the same thing. But Paul seems to consistently use the words to differentiate between a gift that the giver believes, I'm sorry, a gift that God gives to a believer, charismata, and on the other hand, a person who serves in such a complete capacity that the volume and scope of their services to the church should be viewed as a, a large gift to the congregation. That is the domata gifts, the people gifts. So here we're looking at these three domata gifts, these three persons, these three offices that God delivers to the church to be a continual blessing to them. Keep in mind the purpose and function of these offices is the same in Ephesians 4 as it is in 1 Corinthians 12, namely the growth of the body. That's what God is aiming for through giving the church these kinds of offices. See how explicitly Paul makes that clear in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, right? To the measure and the stature and the fullness of who? Of Christ. If God had not assigned certain people to serve in these heightened capacities, the church would be even more vulnerable to the serious dangers of immaturity. They'd be even more susceptible to modern trendiness and to the deceptions of the world. We see that in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. So those offices mentioned in verse 11 and basically paralleled here in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians are put in place so that we might have individuals blessed by God to lead us away from the dangers of being the body of Christ in the world. As the head of the body, Christ makes use of these three proclamation offices which we're going to look at in more detail now to urge the church on to greater spiritual maturity and deeper understanding and to experience the mighty God that we serve in more full and rich ways. And so the very fact that God has appointed them, verse 27 again, he appoints these offices, shows us that while we may desire to serve God in this capacity, we may desire these higher gifts, it is completely God's discretion whom he chooses to use for these offices. Paul is not putting out a great big help wanted sign for these offices in the church in Corinth. You don't shepherd the flock of Jesus just because there isn't another good option on the table for you. You can't find a better job, so maybe I'll just work as a, an elder at a church. You don't shepherd the people of God because it's just the next step in, you know, in, the, in the maturity of every believer. Some people think that you, know, you just keep growing in Christ until you become an elder, but that's not the case here. God appoints certain people for this office. I remember uh, we were at a men's uh, retreat about two and a half years ago. A bunch of our men went out to San Jose, and we got to hear Vody Bauckham, wonderful pastor, preaching. And one of the stories he, he uh, told st stood out to me. There was a man that he had been meeting with, a, a businessman who loved the Lord, who had done tremendous good in the realm of helping the church's finances and, and helping to support and organize and coordinate mission projects. And he came and met with Vody and... And he, uh, he said, Vody, you know what? I keep having people come up to me and say, man, you're so faithful. You love the Lord so much. Maybe you're being called to be an elder. He says, what do you think? And I remember what Vody said, which would go so much against what a lot of people would think. He says, listen, 
There's nothing wrong with being a really good churchman. Just using your gifts the way that God has called you to use them. Do you feel compelled to be an elder? Do you feel that God is drawing you to be an elder? Or do you just feel like you love the Lord and you want to serve him and this is how God has equipped you to serve him? And he says, I don't feel compelled to do that. And he says, then don't let the pressures of people make you think that you're not good enough if you don't become an elder. He's like, you're doing exactly what God has called you to do. And we need better churchmen in the church. We need great elders too, but we need everyday, regular men and women who love the Lord and will serve him with the gifts that God has given to them. And I thought that was, that was so encouraging to hear that from a man like Bodhi Bauckham, who has spent a lot of time encouraging the body of Christ and, and preaching the truth to them. So don't think that the natural progression of the Christian life is you start off as an immature newbie, a, a Christian that doesn't know very much and has to drink the milk of the word, but you know, very just basic principles. And then eventually you grow and you mature and now you're stronger. You're like a mature full-grown Christian, and then as you mature more and you gain stately wisdom and experience and your, your gifts are more finely tuned, then, of course, you become a, a vocational pastor or a missionary. That's not a natural progression, necessarily. If God calls you to it, then praise the Lord. But God does not call everyone to these offices. It is the hand of the Lord that sets someone aside for these purposes. Exactly how God does that is harder to nail down. It really does depend on the person. You read in Samuel, 1 Samuel talks about how Samuel as a young boy was committed to service in the temple of the Lord and he literally heard the voice of God calling him out and he said, here I am, what can I do? And he thought it was Eli at first. He thought it was the other priest. And then Eli discerned, no, this is the voice of the Lord. He is calling you to be a prophet, to, to speak the words of the Lord. So don't hold back and say what you're called to say. We, we think about Paul the apostle, how he was determined to fight against the church. He had his own concepts of what is best and what is right. And it took the Lord just interrupting him and striking him blind before he realized he was being called to something greater. A very, very abrupt and harsh calling into ministry. And we, we read about Timothy, his protege, who received a gift by the laying on of hands. So it doesn't seem like there is like a real set pattern on how someone is called into the ministry. And I remember this is always one of the, the, the most intent questions that seminary students ask. Describe to me exactly how the calling works. And you really can't. I mean, if you read through scripture, you'll see ideas of how it can work and how it has worked. But really when it boils down to this, there's one common denominator, which is a sincere but humble compulsion to serve God in that way. That individual knows that if they do not preach the gospel of God, if they do not serve the church in that capacity, if they don't devote themselves to the edification of the body of Christ, then to them it would be sin. And when that conviction comes upon the heart, when somebody sees that God has gifted them in ways that could be used of, the, of, of, of a leader, of an elder, and then they've got that conviction that, yes, God is preparing me for that now, then they step forward in faith and they do it. So let's think about the distribution of gifting and the authority that God has ordained for these men in the church. First, he has ordained apostles. Now you might think of it as a little strange that he would include this in the Doma gift list because there are specific, specific requirements for this office, right? We learned a couple of weeks back that if you're going to be an apostle in the proper form of the word, then that means you've seen the risen Christ in the flesh. You can testify to the reality of his resurrection and you've been commissioned, sent out by the risen Christ to proclaim that, to testify of his resurrection throughout the world. As far as we know, no one in the city of Corinth could have hoped to meet those requirements. You know, none of the apostles were there at the time. Peter had passed through for a while at some point. Paul had been through there. He's an apostle. But at, that, at the time he's writing this letter, it doesn't seem like any of them are apostles. While the recipients of the letter couldn't really hope to serve as apostles, they needed to see that even the apostles are just a part of the body of Christ, a piece of the equation that God has used historically to establish and build up the body of Christ. They don't get their own metaphor, these apostles. They're a part of the body just like the rest of us. And so while the clearest expression of the body metaphor happens at the local church level, it happens here as we gather together and, and look at what the church needs to do in this context, there is a sense in which the universal church, the church throughout the world, functions as one greater body of Christ 
throughout the world and even throughout time as there are believers who have gone on to live before us and die who are a part of the body of Christ. And there are those who God has yet to draw out of darkness, those who are yet to be born, who are set aside to be a part of the body of Christ. So there is a universal sense in which every believer ever is a part of this body. And so Paul, though writing from a different territory, serving at a different church, still affected a sense of leadership on this congregation in Corinth because he recognized that God had set him aside for this work to be an apostle. And so he's helping them. He's encouraging them and challenging them. He's correcting some of their crooked thinking. He's helping them to be what the church needs to be. Do we even have apostles today? I'm confident that we do not. And you can go back and listen to that previous sermon that Pastor Paul preached very well if you need to see why. Um, We may not have apostles today, but we do continue to benefit from the apostolic work that God ordained. Ephesians 2, again, but this time in verse... 19 through 22 of chapter 2 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You see how apostles are described there along with the prophets? They are like foundational work that God has done to set the church up to grow and to thrive. In sharing their testimony in written form, we continue to benefit from these sent-out witnesses of Jesus' work, even today. And it doesn't make sense if we're to view the work of the apostles and the prophets who gave us the New Testament as foundational uh, tools for the growth of the church today. It would make sense for us to think that we need more apostles, that we need to build the foundations again. The foundations have been laid, right? You build the foundation once, and then you continue to build the structure upon that foundation. So we continue to be blessed by the apostolic work of people like Peter and John and Paul, even though we don't have apostles today. The scriptures they wrote continues their apostolic work even past their death so that we are greatly blessed by them. It may carry the metaphor a little bit too far, I take some liberties here, but we might even say that the revelation that God gave to us through these apostles serves in some ways like DNA serves a real physical body. DNA carries the code that determines how that living organism is going to look and function. The precedence that God has set in these apostles determines what the church should look like and function today as we read their words and their instructions and then we obey them and entrust them as the words of God himself. So first, apostles. Second, prophets. Now by prophets, we mean those who are foretellers who would look forward and announce the things to come, but also the foretellers, right? Those who preach and admonish. Those who assert by way of Christ's teachings. They press the point and they demand a response from God's people. Now in the early days of the church, these individuals, these men, and at times even women, prophetesses, were not afraid to declare what Christ himself had declared. They echoed the message of the apostles. They were used of God to prepare the way and to reveal God's declared word. Now, as I have recently shared, the twofold definition of prophecy means that there can still be those, though they are not able to bring new revelation to bear upon the church, who serve a tremendous service to the church of God by prophetically proclaiming what has been revealed to us through his word. Their courage, their consistency, act as the chain that tethers the great ship to its anchor, the word of God. That wind and waves of each successive storm will not push the vessel off course, will not cause it to smash into the rocks on the shoreline. And so there are are even preachers today that have a prophetic function in that they proclaim the prophecies that are laid out in our scriptures and they declare what we are to follow. And as an example of this, I would venture to say that Pastor John MacArthur of Grace Community Church has been fulfilling this prophetic role in our day by declaring to the courts what the Lord has declared to the churches in the New Testament. That governments are ordained by God to work towards the good of the people and shutting down churches and people's reasonable right to gather for worship is a violation of the freedom that God has ordained for His people 
and a freedom that should be protected by the governments that he has put into place. God used Pastor MacArthur to declare and to be willing to be brave enough to take legal counsel, if necessary, in many ways, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to face fire and to face persecution so that the truth might be proclaimed in the world. Daniel 3, 16 through 19. You remember these verses from your Old Testament studies? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. They had committed a, a national sin. They had broken the laws of Babylon by refusing to bow the knee to this statue of Nebuchadnezzar, which was an idol they would not worship. They were brought before him and told to bow. They refused to do so. And so they were declaring here their, their, their resolve to do what is right. It says, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if he chooses not to deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. John and the other elders of Grace Community Church racked up thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars trying to fight the restrictions in court. And praise the Lord, uh, God has shown favor upon them and has refunded them the legal costs that they had to incur for that battle. But their willingness to proclaim the truth has opened up the gates for other churches to not be afraid and to assemble and to gather and to not have to face legal threats and litigation because it's already been set in court through his precedence. On September 22nd, Contra Costa County is going to institute a vaccination pass. That situation means that in order to go to a public place, such as a restaurant or a gym or even a store uh, that's not grocery related, you're going to have to present a pass that says you have been vaccinated. So that decision, the government is trying to wrestle out of your hands. But there are a couple places you don't have to have that vax pass for. Grocery stores, because obviously everyone needs to eat. And so it would be inhumane for them to deny people that right. But secondly, churches are exempt from this. You know why? Because a prophet proclaimed the truth, even at threats of losing his freedom and being fined hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we're grateful for men like John MacArthur and other pastors who set the precedence. He's not the only one. There have been other men who stood up and said, listen, we're not just going to, we're not just going to let the government tell us that we can't do what God commands us to do. So we're grateful that God has given the church men of that kind of gifting. Thirdly, he's given us teachers, right? Teachers who distributed these trustworthy sayings and systems of understanding to the saints. Now, this speaks particularly of those who are skilled in laboring in the scriptures, seeing with a discerning eye how the Old Testament scripture had pointed forward to the time of the Messiah, helping us to understand the messages of the apostles and the parables instructed by Jesus. The last year and a half has been a hard season for a lot of churches, but I'm so grateful for the progress that the Lord has been making in our church through this whole ordeal. And one of the places we've been seeing that so vividly is the way that people have been stepping up to teach the Word of God. We see it done in our children's Sunday school as people are faithfully getting in there and sharing what they know with our little ones. We now have discipleship training going on on Sunday evenings as we work through Baptist catechism together. And various men who have evidenced the ability to teach have been working on that craft in our evening service. They want to be faithfully used of God in that capacity. The church needs more able, faithfully, spiritually gifted people willing to use those gifts. And so how do teachers edify the body of Christ? How do they do that? They do that by strengthening you so that you can strengthen your family. As, as you hear the word of God preached from a pulpit like this one, or in a small group study, or in your Sunday school classes, or through one-on-one -on -one discipleship, then the more you learn and understand, the more you can go into your family then and lead your family in a godly way and teach your children the truth. These teachers labor patiently in the Word, meaning they put time into it. They are committed to understanding what it truly says. Instead of just breezing through it, they want to know. And so they labor in the Word, not sporadically, but carefully not jumping to conclusions, not adding or subtracting from the Word of God, determined to teach just what the revelation of God says to us. 
They help to advance the affections of God's people. The more you understand the depth of God's person and character and how unique and holy he is, the more you're going to want to pursue him. So when you hear good teaching that reveals to you, look, God is not like anything else that you'll encounter in this world. God is one being in three eternally co, uh, uh, co-powerful rulers, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are one in will. They are inseparable in purpose, but they are unique in role and in some of their expressions. And so this God who is so unique and so different from everything else in the world, as you hear about this God and learn Him taught, that encourages you to want to pursue Him more on your own, to want to see more of this God and give Him more of your time and your affection and worship. And then they help to guard us against the allure of worldly influences and bad doctrine. And there is no shortage, friends, of of false teaching in the world today. People who teach something that sounds like what you might find in the Scripture, sometimes it's something ripped from the Scripture, out of context, but taught in such a way that it leads to the wrong conclusions and would cause those who trust that teaching to be in error and to be against God's command. So teachers help us to guard against these things. Now these are the three distinct offices that we call the Doma gifts. These individuals are blessed by the Lord with a skill, and then they are given to the church as a resource that helps them continually to grow. And they are ranked first, second, and third. Now, what is the meaning of that ranking? First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Does it mean chronologically that God gave apostles first and then he brought some prophets along and then he added teachers to them? Does it mean that they have differences of authority? Are the apostles of greater authority than the prophets and the prophets greater than the teachers? Is it significance to the church that causes them to be ranked one, two, three here? I'll confess to you, church, I'm not entirely sure what that means, why they're ranked one, two, three. I can't tell you with great conviction what that means, but it would seem best to me to understand it like this. Without these three offices in place, the discipleship that is necessary to bring the church into conformity with Jesus Christ, that discipleship would be lacking. And the use of the other gifts would be seriously hindered had we not had these amazing apostles to lay down the foundations for us, had we not had these prophecies that anchor us in the Old Testament revelation and point forward to Christ, if we had not had these men who were willing to proclaim the truth even at threat to their own well-being, if we did not have these teachers who labored in the Word and were willing to help us to understand what they had come to understand, if we did not have these three offices, then the rest of the functions of the church would be dysfunctional. They would, of course, fall into disarray. So Paul tells us about these three doma gifts first, and then he returns to addressing these charismatic gifts, four of which are miraculous in nature, two of which are not. Some of this we've touched on, so for the sake of time, we're only going to dwell on the ones we have yet to discuss. First, he mentions miracles. There are many ways that we see this manifested in the book of Acts, Uh, usually through the office of the apostles. We see the apostle Paul pulling a snake off of his arm and throwing it into the fire. Miraculously, he's not affected by the venom that that snake produced. We see people healed miraculously, even sometimes by somebody taking a, a, a piece of cloth that was in the presence of an apostle and giving it to somebody, caused a person of faith to be healed. We see the casting out of demons. So we see miraculous expressions that in that early formative time of the church were very, very important. And still today, we pray for and see some miraculous healing. We still see God overcoming the odds and protecting his church and lining things up in such a way that circumstances clearly are are an expression of God's providential will in our lives. Secondly, he lists gifts of healing. Now remember, like the miracles, the wording here is interesting. It says gifts of healing. He doesn't say the gift of miracles or the gift of healing. That's interesting I think it probably indicates here that when these gifts were given, they were given circumstantially, that you didn't have your local miracle worker in the church who just always had the ability to do miracles, and when you needed them, you called upon him. I don't think that's what they were talking about here. But faithful men and women led of Christ at times were able to do a healing when God determined to be appropriate. And so these gifts of healing were not necessarily so much like a, a shaman or anything like that, but one who prayed diligently and through God's grace Healing came through that process. We see the gift of of helping here. We haven't talked about this one a whole lot, but here is one of those unsung categories of spiritual giftings that needs not to be overlooked. What does this church do? 
What do we do as a church? We lead people to Christ. We disciple saints to greater maturity. But we do a lot of things that support those two main functions, don't we? We serve about 50 families each week. We give them groceries. Did you know that? We have a food pantry here that meets from 9.30 to 10.30 on Saturday mornings. And people from our community can line up in their cars and they drive through and we give them groceries. We pray with them if they need prayer. We point them to Christ and, and thank them for being our neighbors. And we hope that they will one day come and join us for a worship service. Three rounds of volunteers are needed for that ministry to pick up food on Thursdays and Fridays. They drive their own truck. They load all that hundreds of pounds of food into their vehicles. They bring it back to the church. They set it up in the kitchen, organize our freezers and our refrigerators to make sure all that stuff is ready. And then on Saturday mornings, people get here at 8 o'clock. So when you're still watching your Looney Tunes cartoons, they're out here setting up the tables outside, shades if necessary. They're bagging up the groceries. They're, they're distributing and dividing things up so that everyone gets an equal amount. These people give their time and their efforts. And these are people who are exercising the gift of helping. They want to serve others. They want to bless those who are in need. It takes a tremendous amount of coordination. And we're blessed that Cecilia Pryor is, is a fantastic servant of the church and puts hours and hours into making sure that that ministry runs smoothly. Some of the work does not seem very spiritual that happens at this church. Some of the work is pulling up weeds. Some of the work is going down and fixing somebody's VCR and, and computer setup so that they can stream the service because they're not technologically savvy. Some of it is preparing a meal for somebody who's too sick to really be okay to cook for themselves and bringing that meal and dropping it off at a house. This doesn't seem like very spiritual work on the surface, but man is not only a soul. Man is not just a spirit. Man is also a body. So we need to minister to the whole of a person. We need to minister to their spirit, their soul, their body. The whole person needs the love of Christ. At Sunday school at 9 a.m., your kids gather together to learn from a leader who gave up their opportunity to go to Ivan's great Sunday school class so that they could go in there and teach your kids. You know, throughout this week, they spent time preparing that lesson so they have something to share to the little ones. Somebody coordinated food for those kids and activities and cut out little shapes so that they could put them together in a craft so that our kids will be excited to come to church and we'll learn things that will stick with them and they'll take those things home and learn more when mom and dad talk to them about what they learned at church that day. These are individuals who are helping and giving and it is a spiritual gift to do these kinds of things. Whether it's cleaning up the property or holding a sign in front of Planned Parenthood to urge people to consider life instead of abortion, whether it's bringing meals to a hurting family, the Holy Spirit is actively involved in filling the people of the church in such a way that they're able to minister to the spiritual and the physical needs of their brothers and sisters, and even the community beyond those borders. What could we hope to accomplish if it were not for people willing to help? And with all that help being essential to the work of church's ministry, it is a blessing that God also provides the gift of administrating. Now that word administrating can be translated a couple of different word, ways. It essentially means leadership and coordination. Being gifted by the Spirit to be able to organize, to orchestrate, to direct and instruct in such a way that all of these ministries work together to support the Great Commission that we're called to be faithful to. To illustrate this from the metaphor that, that the Apostle is using here, there's a very small part of your body called the thyroid gland. You know where that's at? It's right up in here. Okay. Very small compared to the rest of your body. The, the thyroid gland doesn't do a whole lot of work itself, but it is, in a sense, responsible for an administrative role in your body. By producing T3 and T4 hormones, the thyroid gland sends those hormones out to your body, into the various systems of your body, to command the body to do what it's supposed to do. The, the thyroid will increase your heart rate if you need more blood flow. It will regulate your body temperature. If you're in a place that's very, very cold, it will bring the, the body heat back into the core so that the most important parts of you are protected and are going to survive. It affects the digestive system. Your metabolism is heavily impacted by the thyroid gland. It can heighten the function of the nervous system in high-stress situations. In younger human beings, it's the part of the body that signals the cells to grow and the brain to develop. So what goes wrong when your thyroid gland starts 
or stops working. All kinds of things go wrong. All kinds of things that need to happen in your body don't ever end up happening or they happen in the wrong ways at the wrong times when they're not supposed to happen. Our bodies need leadership and coordination just like the body of Christ needs leadership and coordination. If we were just a bunch of individuals with unique gifts just running around trying to apply them how we thought they would be most useful, we'd be a mess. But praise the Lord, we have people like Cecilia who come in and are willing to coordinate and organize. who are willing to make phone calls and create lists and structure and are able to give instruction and know how to train the new people who come in and want to be a part of that ministry so that they won't be lost and wandering around. These administrative gifts are so critical to what the church does. As Jesus, the head of the church, instructs his people and provides some of them with particular kinds of gifting, everybody benefits from the planning and the foresight that our administrators provide. And then last on this list, perhaps on purpose, because it appears to be at the heart of the Corinthians' misunderstanding of the spiritual gifts, is the gifts that have to do with speaking in tongues and also their requisite gifts of interpretation. The Corinthians seem to desire tongues. That seems to be their focus and their, and their hope and their aspiration. But it does not seem that tongues is regarded as one of those higher gifts to desire. And he ordered it last in the list. We should desire those first gifts. The, if God would call you to be a, an apostle or in those days, or a prophet or a teacher, those seem to be the higher gifts that Paul is telling us that we should desire. But he doesn't seem to put tongues up there with those other gifts. The early Christians were in many ways passive regarding the appointment, uh, this appointment of, of the, the gift of tongues. God did not enable the disciples to speak in tongues on Pentecost and then just wait around to see if they would choose to do so or not. Rather, the tongues of flame came and rested over their heads and they immediately began to prophesy. They were compelled by those gifts. He caused it to happen. Now, that seems to be unique to the miraculous gifts, whereas conventional gifts, such as administration, such as helping and service, those are more voluntary. You can choose to ignore those gifts or not. The diversity of these many, bo of, of these many bodily gifts, benefits, should be resoundingly clear to us. They range from someone who carries about God-revealed information to share it with the elect to someone who makes sure that there's enough baked bread for communion on the Lord's Day, and every gift in between. But as God's people, we should recognize that every gift that the Spirit generously gives to us should be applied. It should be put to good use. In order to see how important this is, uh, I want to share a story about a, a strike, a union strike that happened in 1986. On July 10th, in Philadelphia, the trash workers who were responsible for collecting the garbage in the city of Philadelphia decided that they were going to strike. They were not receiving the benefits they thought they deserved, and so they stopped picking up the trash. The, the employers of these trash workers decided to try to hold out and to not do anything about it. They remained in negotiations, but they wouldn't budge on their figures. And from July 10th to July 30th, 20,000 tons of garbage was produced in the city of Philadelphia. The city literally came to a grinding, screeching, hot, smelly mess of a halt. Nothing could be accomplished. Suddenly, people began to realize how vital trash workers were, and negotiations got back up again running, okay? So think about that. The garbage men didn't do their job for 20 days, and the city fell into ruin. When we've had presidents assassinated in America, Within a couple of days, the government is still functioning again. It is working again. But something as simple and as small as trash collection has the power to impact everybody. So friends, we must apply the gifts that God has given to us. You might think of your own spiritual gifting as very small compared to the gifting that somebody else has been giving. Very insignificant. But if nobody did the job that God has prepared you and equipped you to do, then it wouldn't get done. And if somebody didn't come and pick up the food on Thursdays and Fridays, we would have no food to distribute to the families that came on Saturday. All of these pieces fit together to make one puzzle, the church. Nobody frames a puzzle and puts it up on the wall if there are two or three pieces missing, right? Its beauty lies in its completion. So when the church is applying their gifts, the church takes on the beauty of Christ. 
Every gift the Spirit generously gives to us should be applied, and every gift the Spirit generously gives to us should also be appreciated, friends. I'm amazed at how much Ephesians, again, parallels this book. And I'm going to read to you verses 28 and 29 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Now that passage is specifically talking about husbands loving their wives because they are one flesh with their wives. But, but if Paul is also talking about the church as one flesh, as the body of Christ, I think the principle still applies in a tangential way that we should love the body of Christ. We should appreciate all the things that people do to make sure that the body of Christ is what it is supposed to be, a place of acceptance, a place of encouragement, a place of challenge and admonition, a place of learning and growth, a place of accountability, a place of grace and forgiveness a place where the things that God calls the church to do are actually done. So let us not forget to appreciate those who make even the littlest part of the church function the way it's supposed to. Remember that those who are in perhaps in need of modesty and, 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 and discretion get special attention, those parts of the body. We talked about that last week. So go the extra mile and make sure that those whose work is maybe a little bit under the radar, not as appreciated as others, make sure that they know that their efforts are not lost on you. Thank them for what they do. Be grateful for the Lord for the work that they do. They aren't serving for your praise. They're serving to be obedient to the head. But the body will be healthier if we learn to appreciate the body, encourage it, not taking it for granted or wearing it out unnecessarily. Every piece of this body is vital, friends. And so... We don't want to miss Paul's admonition here that some of the gifts are to be considered higher. Some are more noticeable. Some are more upfront and visible. We don't need to pretend that this isn't so if we will embrace the fact that we don't as a church need to be uniform. In fact, we're not supposed to be uniform, everyone exactly the same. The diversity that God has built into the church is beautiful and it's meant to work together in a way that we are all in harmony as we apply our unique perspectives and giftings. And there's nothing wrong with desiring these higher gifts in the appropriate way. In fact, we should hope for God to use these higher gifts, these gifts of influence and direction in powerful ways to bless His church, maybe even through us. But notice exactly what the Scripture says. It says, desire the higher gifts. It does not say, pursue the higher gifts. It does not say that if you are currently serving as a helper, but you really wish that you were a preacher, that now you stop helping and you go and you hit the books and you, you, know, you, you dig in and you determine that you're not going to do anything until you can preach because that's what you want. It doesn't say to do that. It doesn't say pursue those higher gifts. Remember, God is the one who appoints these gifts to us. So if the Lord is putting it on your heart to do it, if he is clearly calling you to it, then yes, pursue it. But only if that is the case. Desire the higher gifts, don't pursue them. Desire the higher gifts, don't envy them in others. Don't look at others with a sense of jealousy or longing, wishing that you could be what God has made them to be. That is the hand, or the, that is rather the foot saying that it wishes it was the hand. When in fact, the foot is incredibly important to the body, and without it, the body would not function as it is supposed to. So do not envy the higher gifts, rather desire them. Desire them not just in yourself, but desire them for your church as a body. Pray that God would equip people to do this good work that is needed in the church, that he would send workers out into the harvest to apply the kinds of giftings that are necessary for those in the community to hear the goodness of Christ and to turn to Jesus. I am so very grateful for the men who serve as deacons in this church. To be able to be alongside Roel and Jeff, to be able to serve with Matt and Mark and Stephen is a blessing to me. And I know that many of you have experienced that blessing straightforward. To be able to, to be on staff with Paul, to serve alongside Ross and Sean is, is a gift to my heart. To know that these men love the church and are committed to pointing it in the right direction. To have people who are working in our ministries that are committed to doing it in a way that honors God and doesn't forget that Christ is at the center of all things. We are so blessed, church, to have teachers and workers, and servants who love Christ first. So continue to thank them for what they do, and thank the Lord for equipping the body to be what it needs to be. For the Corinthians, through their division, 
They had in some ways made the pastorate something of a, of a celebrity status. Remember in the beginning of our letter, we talked about how some of them followed after apost- the apostle Paulos. Some of them pa- followed after Paul. Some of them followed after Peter and felt like they only needed the teaching of that one individual. And in doing so, they were violating the body principle. They weren't appreciating that each of these men played their part, but each of them was different on purpose. And that if we fail to care for all the parts of the body, then we, f- we neglect the body itself and, and contribute to its unhealthiness. If the church understands and handles these gifts properly, then God is exalted, not man. If the church understands and handles these gifts improperly, those unbelievers who are paying attention to the church have their attention distracted away from Christ and back to his people as they squabble, as they complain, as they scramble for more personal credit and kudos. Their inappropriate self-centered ambitions draw the attention of the world away from Christ and onto their worldliness. The best leaders in the context of the church are the best followers of Jesus, those who follow him best, those who are happy to be humble before the Lord. If they want the Lord exalted above all, then it makes them be a better leader. Mark their devotion. Watch it and learn from it. Imitate it, knowing that your efforts to reproduce their obedience is effectively reproducing the characteristics of our Savior. Just as Paul wrote, follow me as I follow Christ. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for this day, and we ask that that as we consider the magnitude of this metaphor, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would help us to love you and to apply it in ways that we would love not only you, but your, your children as well, God. Help us to be affectionate to the union that you have brought about among us, Lord God. Help us to rejoice and celebrate the differences of people here, God. We're so happy that we have a diverse congregation, Lord, that we all don't look the same or sound the same or come from the same places. And so, Lord God, we're very grateful that you have orchestrated this. And we know that it is only by the power of the Spirit that such diverse and different people can have the hope of standing on the same common ground. So knit us together by your Spirit, Lord God. Keep us near to you, Father. And when, when the body grows sick, when we aren't doing what we should do, Father, I pray that you would provide in supernatural, spiritual ways, that you would bring people that have the gifts we need or that you would gift those who had not been gifted before in ways that every need will be met. We trust that it will, for you are a keeper of promises, Lord, and you care for your bride. So continue to love us as we need to be loved. In Jesus' name, amen.